Without further ado, I'd love to introduce our keynote uh, plenary today, um, Leah Bassel. Leah is um, Professor of Sociology at the University of Roehampton in the UK, and her research interests include political sociology of migration, intersectionality and citizenship, um, and her books include Refugee Women Beyond Gender Versus Culture, and of course a book called The Politics of Listening, um, Possibilities and Challenges for Democratic Life that came out last year. And a lot of thinking and reflection Leah's going to do will connect to the work in that book and since. Um, so I will um, hand over to Leah um, for that. Um, Leah also is currently the Crow Principal Investigator with Akuojo Amijulu on um, the Open Society funded project Women of Colour Resist. And she's a member of Harangi Welcome campaign group for fairness, dignity and respect for migrants and refugees in the London borough of Harrogney. Before um, pursuing an academic career, Leah was an emergency outreach worker in Paris, um, where she provided humanitarian assistance to asylum seekers and also created a circus camp project for refugees. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, I would also like to start by acknowledging the Bedigal people, uh, traditional custodians of this land, and to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who are present here today. Uh, I need to say that by situating myself as someone who grew up as a settler in another stolen land in Canada, and to take very seriously what Summer May Finley said to us yesterday about being uncomfortable and being okay with it, because I am very uncomfortable and uh, I, I have to learn to deal with that. Even reading these words to you just now, I'm, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. Uh, I'm afraid of, of misspeaking, even though I have printed words very carefully on my page. I see the ways in which sometimes I read or write what I think I'm hearing and the wrong words come out because of a kind of hard wiring, despite years of education. And I think that's, that's the job that we're, we're trying to do, or certainly I'm trying to do, and I know many other people here are trying to do. So I wanted to start by declaring that um, and hopefully working through it with all of you. I also want to say a huge thanks to Tanya. Um, her generosity in a, a zero-sum environment is, is, is extraordinary. Um, everybody is closing spaces, closing borders of every description, and it's surprising when somebody welcomes, especially in the kind of land-grabbing environment of academia, and I use that term quite deliberately. So it, it's really an honor and uh, a privilege to be invited here by you. Thank you for that. Thank you also, Poppy D'Souza. Uh, who I finally met face-to-face -face and whose work I've had the privilege of discovering through Tanya and who along with uh, Diana Krimers has done a lot of hard work and Diana great to discover her work as well in the, in the um, early career workshop uh, before the conference has done this hard work to bring us together here with all that attention and care and I'm really very very grateful and thank you to, to all of you. And the final thank you is to all the people who very nicely and spontaneously come up to me over the past few days to say very generous things about my book. I, I do appreciate that and I hope we can build on those conversations now in, in, the, in the time that we have together. We also need to acknowledge uh, the um, diversity of approaches that bring us together under this umbrella of, of listening and politics of listening. 
I, uh, as you're going to see, am coming from what, for want of a better word, we might call a logocentric tradition, one that focuses on word and voice and speech. And I want to recognize all of the work here that isn't doing that, that's doing other things, people who are doing very different things. Uh, if I'm saying that to you, it's not out of some sort of pride or desire to maintain those boundaries. It's just to, to think about our differences and what they might mean, especially when they may be masking exclusions. And I think the panel yesterday on listening uh, with disability for democracy, and I see some of the panelists in the room, Kate, um, and uh, Rosemary um, Kegis and Jared Goggin, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing people's names wrong, that, that's a really important reminder that I, I take to heart, and these are things we need to be thinking through. Mm -hmm. So the question is not so much then, um, do, it's not so much about overcoming those differences, and certainly not about entrenching them and saying, oh, thank God I'm not doing what she's doing. It, it's thinking about what, what kind of intellectual and creative work we might do uh, with our differences in our approaches to this area. And again, I think that's really the, the stunning achievement of this uh, symposium turned conference and to bring us together in this way. In terms of where I'm coming from, it's from a meeting point of sociology and my former discipline, political science. Uh, I've drawn empirical and theoretical work, sometimes both. And sometimes neither, sometimes doing things that don't really sit very squarely and comfortably within the academy. And I'm going to be bringing those things together in, in this conversation. So there are three parts to this. First, a little overview of how I came to the study of listening and what this means for thinking about listening as micropolitics. And I know that's a term other people here have used. Uh, second, why, uh, why a politics of listening? And why particularly around the idea of what I, I'm calling uh, political equality? and how that might be done, and that's the title of the talk, how that might be done as a form of listening, as solidarity. And at the end, if we have time, a few reflections, and now, that I'll, I'm willing to be stopped when it's time. Okay, what, what politics of listening? And, and I'm just gonna sketch out the, the pathway I took here, and that hopefully that provides a point of, of reflection for the rest of us in terms of how, how we've reached this, this conversation. And this is something I talk about in the beginning of my book, The Politics of Listening, where I, I talk about the work I was doing in the late 1990s and early 2000s in France in areas that had been and were again soon to be affected by riots. And uh, there's a whole sort of story there about interacting with people who have a very strong relationship of tension, of pride, of solidarity to place, to the people that they live with, to the institutions that govern uh, their, their everyday spaces. And uh, these are heavily stigmatized areas by the French state, by French society. The, the French love their acronyms. It's um, the zones urbaines sensibles, the sensitive urban zones. So these are very scrutinized spaces, very stigmatized spaces. And being told by officials, uh, both when I was working, when I came back as a doctoral student, yeah, yeah, that stuff happened. It's never going to happen again. And then 2005 comes. And there was that kind of violence of the events themselves, the death while uh, being chased by police of Zayed Bena and Bouna Traoré, very violent response on the part of the French state, tear gas first, ask questions later, uh, imposition of a colonial era curfew law on French citizens, a name you may recognize, then Interior Minister uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, who called the young men rioting scum, or racailles, and suggested that they be cleaned away with a high-pressure water gun at Kerchero. So for me, that was 
very difficult and making me very angry and, and upset, but it was a kind of standing back, well, it's not my country, it's not my situation, I, I'm going to have to watch and just be upset. And when the events of 2011 happened in Tottenham in London following the shooting by police of a young black man, Mark Duggan, something shifted for me and it, it stopped being this, it's their country. Um, I think it's difficult to say it's we, but something changed for me. And that, that's what got me here, that's what got me to this book. Because I worked with some other colleagues, Gurminder Bambra and Ipek Demir, and we organized um, an attempt anyway to have a public dialogue about what had happened, why, and, and what now. And I think we, we all know how difficult it is to achieve the kinds of conditions for a productive dialogue in those kinds of environments. We're all thinking about those kinds of issues. And that's a lot of kind of deliberative democracy uh, 101 almost, I mean, who's going to speak? How are you going to set it up? What are you going to do? But what, what was striking to me uh, was more what I wasn't hearing, the kinds of uh, omissions and silences, and the really binary kind of political space around the riots of 2011, the events of 2011, where if you didn't immediately jump to condemn uh, feral youth and failed parents, and if this was the political vocabulary that then translated into very specific policy measures, you, you were inaudible. Or you had to just fall over yourself to explain, uh, as the then leader of the Labour Party, Ed Miliband, did, say, ah, to, to explain is not to excuse. There's that kind of partitioning of space, and there's not really room for anyone else. And this resonated with uh, other work that I talk about in other, other chapters of the book, where, for example, in my work with Muslim women in Canada and France, um, there were the words, very powerful words of a Somali-Canadian woman who was talking about the practice of female genital mutilation, which is the term that she chose to use, and said, I wish white liberal women would stop saving us. They only listen to you if you bash your culture. So the question for me then became, well, what uh, politics of listening or, or failed politics of listening is allowing for that partitioning of public space? and um, is allowing for that, and here I'm just going to draw very briefly from ideas of people like uh, Jacques Monsieur, uh, that kind of partitioning of the sensible, or what Judith Butler refers to as uh, norms of intelligibility. I'm referring to them briefly though because it was not my intention and still is not my intention to espouse some sort of grand theory of listening and instead as I said earlier my approach has been one of exploring some of what I call the, the micro politics of listening and the ways in which that is a, a social and a political process that can create that kind of responsibility that Susan Bickford talks about in her pathbreaking book for the roles of speaking and listening to change and that I think Tanya has developed very powerfully that idea of shifting responsibility. And the characteristics of this kind of politics emerge when we're attentive to that interdependence of speaking and listening in these different contexts, and I look at quite a few different contexts in this work and have since, of alienation, of distrust, of uh, disaffection with traditional politics, and I should say, following on from our conversation at the book launch, disaffection with traditionally dominant political parties. So there's this different possibility then, this different way of doing politics when we think about these alternative connections between speaking and listening. The first step of which, and here the work I think of the sociologist Les Back is very informative, is, is actually just to stop talking. And I think that's something we've talked a lot about over the last little while. He, he talks about the art of listening, how um, in our culture there's a, and he's talking about 
European and UK, especially the London-based culture in particular, uh, that it's one that speaks rather than listens. There's this kind of compulsion to narrate and to, to claim attention, and that damages our capacity to hear. And so he's uh, advocating a kind of ethics of humility and restraints where, for example, you don't charge into the riots with your pet theory and fit very complex events and other people's narratives into your own understanding. That can also open up these kinds of false comforts of everybody's either an angel or a demon, uh, but no one's ever actually human. And I think Les writes very well about that, and it's something to keep in mind. But the task that I set for myself here <laughs> was to think about how it might be possible also to act in the face of conflict in those contexts where hierarchies and inequalities of voice and audibility are so deeply entrenched. But there's the problem of time, which those who were in the early career workshop will remember talking about as well, this problem of needing to act here and now, not, not with the luxury of, of uh, long reflection. So that humility and attention to context, yes, are indispensable, but they're not enough. Uh, they're good moorings, certainly for in my discipline, sociology, that's something that's very prized by many of us, a good way to be a public sociologist. But that doesn't always do very good political work on its own. And what does that mean, we sociologists or me, what does that mean I'm asking for in those moments? Am I asking all of those public actors to, to be sociologists? And anyone who's participated in, for example, highly charged policy consultations where you provide evidence to politicians knows how, how quickly that can be dismissed. Um, I've, I've certainly had that experience. And more importantly, as, as Megan Davis was reminding us yesterday, how the process shapes that kind of debate and how for instance, academics provide evidence that is really divergent from what emerges from the kinds of dialogues that she was telling us about. So the question then is how this kind of politics can be undertaken in adversar ad ad adversarial, unequal, binary, tense political moments when that kind of complexity is an endangered species, when things have to happen here and now. And I think I'd also like to distinguish this approach, which is at the meeting point of sociology and politics, from a more maybe what we might call traditional or conventional political science um, approach, where we have listening as a kind of um, magic bullet for policymaking, where uh, that's just going to be a kind of, I think, Justine, you wrote about this so nicely, is listening as a cure, a managerial cure. And we see that in these policymaking processes as well where this is going to be a way to respond to uh, policy preferences as expressed through electorates and uh, through data gathered, for example, through, through opinion polls. And that's a kind of technocratic fix that sometimes listening work, as, as you've written about, Justine, gets, gets slotted into. Um, that, that's that's not, not my interest and not what I'm doing. And I think also something we can very carefully distinguish, because that's that kind of technocratic institutionalizing listening work very carefully distinguished from what I imperfectly understood yesterday from, from Megan Davis's uh, talk about the very distinct from the kind of change and, and reform of law and constitution, these kinds of far-reaching changes 
demanded of a parliament that doesn't listen, that can't, so needs to be compelled to by enshrining a norm of listening in, in the constitution and in law. Those, those, that's a very different project. What, what, what I think is, 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 is the problem are these technocratic, depoliticizing, quick managerial fixes that we also find in these, in these institutionalizing approaches. Instead, how can we pay close attention to power and privilege, to think about how it's possible then sometimes through listening for these entrenched hierarchies of voice and of audibility to be shaken from the bottom up on, on the terms of, of people who are attempting and who are claiming audibility. So that takes us then to, to why listening and, and to this idea of political equality and then how we might listen, listening as, as solidarity. And this is a, an idea I, I develop um, to some extent in the book in terms of how uh, there's that sort of intrinsic value to listening as a way of um, overcoming these vicious exclusions that uh, form around axes such as race, gender, class, sexuality, legal status, and many others that Imogen Tyler argues render people socially abject and that for our purposes renders people unheard. Uh, certainly, there's an important influence to draw on here from the agonistic democratic tradition. I've already mentioned uh, Jacques Rancière. Uh, this um, is a, an influence, certainly, in the argument that I've developed. This idea of, of claiming, um, claiming of, and speaking even when you're not recognized as someone who's capable of having voice. So these ideas around noise and voice. And that through this kind of lens, we can have new subjects emerge, we can have new, new norms of audibility, and new, um, new frames for speech, and new ways of enacting equality, rather than just waiting for someone to tell you that you're equal and now you can speak. And I think those are really powerful kinds of, of possibilities. Um, these are powerful types of, of challenges that can break down some of those binaries between us, the audible, and, and them, the silent or stigmatized others. But at the same time, and this is where there's a kind of, for me now, a dialogue emerging between these two books that I wrote that came out with this, this second book with Akugo Emajulu uh, that uh, came out at the same time and now I think I, I'm forcing together more because at the same time, um, at the heart of this project has to be uh, the, the challenge of countering um, what Spivak and other people since have elaborated on, of challenging epistemic violence. And um, that's, that's something we, 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 that I try to attend to in the study of these listening processes, but also in the kinds of frames and theories that we're choosing to apprehend and perceive and theorize, if we want to use the word, listening itself. I have to say, and I'm going to try to say this carefully, I've presented this work several times now on listening. I've talked about Rancière. I've had the temerity to have objections or divergences from the work of Rancière, particularly because I put that work in dialogue with uh, black feminism and feminism of women of color, uh, and I, I think there are some profound tensions there. And, and I'm talking about my experience here, I'm not targeting anybody in the room with this comment, but there have persistently been certain people who've pushed back on this, and they've often looked the same. It's often been, and I'm not talking about once or twice, I'm talking about five, six, seven, eight times. It's often been people who've presented to me as male, who I've read as white, and who haven't wanted to engage in that conversation. And this is really, really challenging. I mean, I think this picks up on some of the challenges too that many people, I know certainly I've expressed, 
uh, experienced in trying to do things like decolonizing the curriculum when there's this kind of canon and maybe a canon that emerges in different ways for different people around listening and that is then <laughs> born out of particular hierarchies of audibility and of, of knowability uh, in the listening literature itself. And that's something that I'd like to, to mark here so we can think about how, who, what, how we're bringing who we are to the study of listening and what kind of knowledge production then results. For me, certainly, because especially of the way these two books come together, um, there's, there's that really important insight that comes out of intersectional and especially the traditions I've explored of black feminism, uh, centering uh, women of color as knowers, as political agents, not as people to be selectively picked upon in policy processes or by social movement allies, to have bits of narratives co-opted for the purpose of other grander projects. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of epistemic violence that since Spivak's work, other people, Dotson, have been talking about, that persistent exclusion, epistemic exclusion, that prevents contribution to knowledge to knowledge production. So that's something we need to be thinking about, not just in what we're observing, in the processes and politics of listening that we're analyzing, but that, that's about our, our knowledge production. And I know many people here are doing that. It's really an invitation to, to join in that kind of reflection. Certainly we can think of that kind of failure in the processes and the micropolitics um, that, that happen when Muslim women are only listened to, when bashing their culture, can't be a source of other political action, other political knowledge, when young men uh, are only remembered, are only heard when they riot. That's the only kind of register and the only possibility, again, of that kind of knowledge production. And it's not to say then that the goal of that could instead be some kind of authentic clarity, because none of us are ever going to be authentically clear to one another. But uh, Bigford, again, uh, writes very well about this, because what she's suggesting is that, well, we're never going to be that, but we shouldn't have such radically unequal uh, forms of distortion, that there should be some possibility to at least not have such systematic deflection and misinterpretation and stigmatization of, of certain voices. So um, central to this, of course, as I've said, is how, how we're analyzing, but also the kind of knowledge that we're producing. And I think we have a lot to learn here from uh, those ideas of political equality that can motivate listening, that can motivate a politics of listening, and that also then take us to the question of how that kind of listening can take place, how we might undertake what I'm calling here a kind of listening as solidarity. So what kind of open-ended interpretations, what kind of open-ended representations can emerge, drawing on people's own terms uh, that allow those kinds of other forms of speech to emerge and other forms of listening to emerge that can at least fleetingly meet or uh, aspire to or tend toward some moments of political equality. And this is where um, the, the examples from back home are, are very uh, interesting for me. And I'd like to share some of them with you, which I explore a little bit in the book, but which, of course, there are a lot more to say about. And this is uh, about the, the activism in Canada and the political listening on the part of migrant justice activists. And Harsha Walia has written this great book where she's brought together the voices of other, other migrant justice activists as well, which I strongly encourage you to read and which I'll be referring to in this, in this um, moment, where... Um, where there's been this growing acknowledgement, especially among the group No One is Illegal, 
of the need to recast migrant justice, um, to recast action and ideology, to recognize and support the struggles of Indigenous peoples. And in the Canadian context by Indigenous, I'm referring to First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, but I use the broader term for the purpose of this presentation. Uh, maybe people already know this, but Canada has such an effective PR machine that I feel I need to say it, that the, we, <laughs> I'm not gonna say anything about the Prime Minister right now, but anyway. Um, the ongoing oppression of Indigenous peoples in Canada is, um, is an untold story. I mean, we have extremely, and here I do say we, because I grew up there, and that is the society that, that benefited me. Uh, we, we have this extraordinarily powerful machine that vehicles this kind of uh, multicultural success story that someone like me and my family are the, the living proof of, but that is completely masked and silenced for a very long time in, for example, the educational sphere, among others, and in public life. Um, this, this untold story where at the same moment we'll recognize the humanity of refugees and we'll publicize the numbers of people and the sponsorships and the protections and dehumanize uh, indigenous peoples. Um, there's only recently public consciousness of the, the ongoing, the, the founding genocide of Canada, of horrors of residential school systems, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, indigenous deaths in custody. And what becomes very interesting here is um, the indigenous resurgent movement since 2012, Idle No More, which makes that impossible now, which increasingly challenges that ongoing colonialism. And for the purposes of, of listening um, that I've talked about here, the way in which these migrant justice activists, this group, No One Is Illegal, have engaged in this practice of listening as solidarity where they've reconsidered their understanding of borders and citizenship and what they should be claiming as a migrant justice movement by undertaking that process of listening and rethinking that understanding of sovereignty, of territory, of the legitimacy of Canada as a state, by centering that colonial legacy that has dispossessed and disenfranchised Indigenous peoples in Canada. So that's that moment of humility, that's renouncing that speaking role, that's, that's that step back but an attempt to do that in a way that recognizes that conversation as taking place in an ongoing settler-colonial relationship. And that is something within the movement, as Harsha, Walia, and other people have, have discussed, that has had a really profound implication, uh, because that means you, you need to be thinking very differently about how you're understanding land and free movement and territory when you're claiming no one is illegal. <coughs> Thinking about the ways that undermine struggles for land and title and um, different relationships to land and creating divisions between communities that are already marginalized. So the question that no one is illegal activists have considered very explicitly is how, how to question the legitimacy of borders, how to demand, for example, the regularization of non-status people on stolen land. And there are two important points here about political equality and about epistemic violence. And the first is that, in terms of political equality, is that this is about hearing indigenous struggles on their own terms, about questioning um, political inequalities and in exchange in the way the different hierarchies of voice, but also, again, that broader question about the legitimacy of the Canadian state, uh, questioning that for different reasons than they had been questioning it before. 
And it's recasting that kind of us that gets created through a politics of listening away from the state. And I think that's a really important and interesting move and a very significant one. Uh, this is a way of enacting equality between these relatively um, non-state actors, uh, not waiting for it to be bestowed, and having a dialogue that can break with that dynamic that Walia describes as a dynamic of colonial intrusion. And I think that's a more radical and fleeting moment of political equality because of the ways in which it takes place away from the state. That's not the interlocutor. That's not the addressee of this moment. There's this meaning that's recast through this interdependent and reciprocal exchange. And there's the possibility then of, of a kind of spontaneous quality of speaking and acting and of creating new relations of recognition uh, through that mutual effort and through that attempt to seriously uh, reconsider what is being claimed in the name of migrant justice by recentering and by centering um, indigenous sovereignties. Certainly that doesn't mean that anybody, for example, in this book or any of the other activists in that movement are claiming to adopt uh, perspectives of different, um, different groups of indigenous allies. Uh, it's that opportunity to, um, as Bickford, as many of the, the women of color whose work she draws upon argued, to, to see the world not as you do, but as, as, as I construct it for you. And that's, that's the very interesting, um, very interesting conversation that has taken place there. And that, that's meant those kinds of shifts toward uh, thinking, thinking through um, a different relationship to land of, of stewardship rather than ownership on the part of indigenous allies of then um, doing something with this knowledge, which is what Lorena um, Allen was telling us yesterday about what, what is then done with that? And for me, that's really the most, most important question. What is done with that then? Uh, moving beyond those kinds of acknowledgements that we were talking about at the beginning, where I said, oh, that's very uncomfortable. Well, that, that can become very performative, very tokenistic. Tanya, I know you've, you've thought about this as well. That can become just that kind of moment, and then business carries on as usual. And um, migrant justice activists call for open borders. And nothing's actually changed. And that's what's so significant about this, this moment and this movement and this kind of conversation that's, that's taking place. Different slogans, definitely. So um, no one is a legal activist. Talk about the wane of no borders, no nations. Uh, in light of this kind of conversation, in light of this kind of listening as solidarity, and about turning those kinds of slogans into acts that some of them refer to as acts of decolonization. What does that then translate into? New slogans, for example. Uh, not um, no borders, no nations. Not calls for open borders. Um, no one is illegal. Canada is illegal. And also building reciprocity beyond, uh, beyond those slogans, recognizing a long history of shared action, a long history, for instance, of indigenous solidarity across Canada with uh, migrant struggles. So there are so many important examples and such an important history that is being shared of, for example, um, communities that host refugees facing deportation, uh, immigration authorities being named as opponents in um, in activism against pipeline expansions, um, adoption of migrants at risk of deportation in order to protect the migrants in question from the jurisdiction of the Canadian state. So these are these kinds of uh, opportunities then to 
through these fleeting moments of, of political equality then to, to understand <coughs> listening and to practice listening as, as solidarity. And very importantly, and this is the second point I'd like to make about this example, to do this and about this very important moment is to do this in a way that centers indigenous sovereignties and challenges that epistemic violence in the process of listening as solidarity. So this way in which the, um, many of the activists who've been very involved in this conversation are very consciously not um, subordinating and replicating state assimilation by subordinating indigenous struggles within their own narratives around migrant justice, especially around their narratives of open borders, which are much more common, for instance, in, in European movements. So that, that's, a, that's a very different stance and there are very different actions that, that result. And this is about understanding and solidarity on, on different terms, on, on the terms of Indigenous allies, again, to recast migrant justice. Do I have a little, what's happening? Oh, oh, good, okay, I thought I was, I thought I was way behind, it's okay. I, ha I have time to say one more thing, I'm just gonna take a little sip of water here. Okay, so I hope that's, um, that's given you some, some ideas of, of where I'm coming from in terms of, um, of what kind of, um, of, of why listening might happen, these kind of fleeting moments of political equality because of those systematic and highly unequal deflections and de devaluing of certain, certain voices and certain, uh, these very unequal distribution, shall we say, of audibility but also an understanding of political equality that not, it's not something you're just going to be given, not something that people should be waiting for uh, from the state. And that's what's very important and I would say more radical in this example and in this, in this very interesting moment of listening as solidarity between migrant justice activists and in, in some indigenous allies in, 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 in Canada. Um, what I'd like to just say in the remaining minutes, because I did want to make it a, a point not to do a talk on listening and talk the entire time, is uh, to share with you a little bit of a reflection in terms of where I see this going now. And I'm not going to do this in a prescriptive way by setting a research agenda for everybody in the room, because I don't think that's very interesting. I'm going to share with you some of my own reflections on where that is taking me in my own practice as well as my own thinking. And uh, as uh, Poppy mentioned, and I said a little bit about yesterday, um, now I'm not wearing an academic hat if one is allowed to take these things off. Um, I'm a member of Herringay Welcome, which is a local campaign group. I'm a volunteer in this group where we campaign for fairness, dignity, and respect for everyone, every newcomer to our borough, which is an area in North London, uh, but particularly focusing on migrants and, and refugees. And, um, I mean, you get a little glimpse of, uh, of the movement here, of uh, our launch. Um, it's a nonpartisan group, but we had the support at our launch of the Labour MP, uh, David Lamy, who's in the middle of this, of this picture, um, who is a very vocal, uh, has been an increasingly vocal opponent of the government's um, immigration policy in the UK, uh, particularly uh, the Windrush scandal, which I'll say a little bit about in a moment. If you look very closely, you can see the um, tip of my daughter's nose. <laughs> she thought it would be important to get in on the action. And, and, and this has been a yeah, very interesting experience for me. Again, one of those things that doesn't always sit squarely and comfortably within the academy. 
But part of what this led me to uh, is uh, an opportunity to participate in the Permanent People's Tribunal um, on, um, on the violations of uh, human rights of migrants and refugee peoples. And I, I bring up, I thought this would be an interesting example before I came, just given the different orientations and backgrounds we're all coming from. And I've heard a number of people in their presentations talking about people's tribunals. So this is an invitation to, for us to, to talk together. If we don't get to in this session, please let, let's talk afterwards. Um, so the Permanent People's Tribunal, um, I, I went to the tribunal and served there as a juror. It was just a couple weeks ago. So this is very fresh for me. And this is a, uh, perhaps a risk, but an opportunity to think that experience through with you, through the lens of, of listening. And, um, it was to put the hostile environment on trial. And I, I said this last night, but I know everyone wasn't there. I mean, the hostile environment is the official name for UK government policy toward uh, migrants and refugees. Uh, it's, not, it's not just me getting overzealous. That, that was the name of the policy until very recently when reassuringly it's been renamed the compliant environment. And that's something, it's a policy that through successive immigration acts has effectively turned everybody into a border guard. So that includes us, university lecturers, uh, public services, health, um, schools. And the aim of the tribunal then was, was to put that policy on trial, especially given the ways in which it affects everybody, um, people who are themselves migrants and refugees, anyone who looks like they might be a migrant or a refugee, through old colonial pathways to the Windrush generation, so the generation of people particularly who arrived before 1973 as British subjects, particularly from the Caribbean, uh, many of whom have been detained, um, threatened with deportation, deported as a result of this hostile environment, despite having made their entire lives in the UK. So this tribunal was a kind of, um, it was a public opinion tribunal. It was directed at the UK and at the EU and EU member states in order to put that uh, hostile environment on, on trial in the UK, but also across Europe. And, and the Permanent People's Tribunal, I mean, I don't know if people are familiar with the history of it, but it has a long history going back to the Russell Tribunal with um, Latin American dictatorships in the, late, in the late 70s. It's become a kind of forum of complaint for people who are experiencing the absence of international law but also, and I think uh, as importantly, it's beyond that recognition of criminal responsibility for uh, a kind of labor of truth and, and memory and moral reparation. And so what that required from us uh, as jurors, uh, what that involved, and some of us were academics and some of us, uh, some people were activists and other, other people from other backgrounds, was to, to, go, to attend the hearing, to listen to two days of testimony and evidence, much of which was submitted in advance, where people were testifying about the effects of UK and wider hostile environment policies across, across the EU. And we, we had to do this kind of, it was almost this kind of um, cross-examining, but more importantly, a job of listening, uh, a role of listening to people who were giving their testimony. Obviously, it goes without saying, in austerity Britain, there was no money. A lot of groups put a lot of time and energy and effort into making this tribunal happen, into bringing everybody together. It was a very intense commitment for all of us. We heard very difficult personal narratives uh, about um, I mean, things I'm sure many people are familiar with, um, violence and exploitation of, of detainee labor, um, of, um, of deten what, what has been um, detainee testimony from quite notorious centers like the Yarls Wood Center in the UK. Um, domestic migrant worker abuse uh, recounted by survivors 
who were also um, deploring the reversal in government policy, which had made some significant strides toward recognizing domestic work as work and violations as violations, and that's been reversed in, in, in recent years. And the challenges, but also the victories around some of those complicities and requirements, for instance, to share data between, um, between the Home Office, the Immigration Office of, of, of the UK, and, uh, and schools. Um, so, for example, um, there's been a school census where parents such as myself have been asked for nationality of our <coughs> children, and that information has been shared by the Department of Education with the Home Office and has been used um, and could be used for immigration enforcement purposes. So there have been really important victories by campaigning groups who have asked parents to boycott the school census. And these were people sharing these kinds of experiences and strategies at the tribunal. Similar issues in the healthcare system. The listening, the listening was, was exhilarating and exhausting. And at the end, we were asked as jurors to sum up uh, our statement, to give a kind of foreshadowing of the verdict that we have to, to now render. And uh, as I read through my notes, I hadn't come there, as I said, with an academic hat on. And I hadn't come there thinking in those ways. But we were asked, you have half an hour, and then you're going to come in and sum up, sum up your, your verdict. And that was suddenly very it was there, it was the action here and now. And for me, the only lens that, that worked was to talk about listening and to, to share that uh, kind of lens with, with the tribunal and with the people who had attended um, the tribunal over, over the past two days. And I think it's, it's important to note here that the, the power of that kind of frame and what it elicited from people was, was quite remarkable. Um, the way it kind of revealed us to each other um, and connected us, uh, what we could do together, what was at stake in that whole web of relationships that we built up over the two days of the tribunal. Uh, us, the mostly silent jurors, like sitting up on a table, I mean, it was, uh, and then people testifying at this lectern, and then the public, uh, many of whom are very prominent activists and, and very prominent, um, um, very, very, doing really important work in this area. and. Saying that just named that relationship and gave this kind of reversal and reflection on it that, that opened, opened up a, a, a very interesting conversation and that kind of path to acting together, not, not adopting the perspective of every single person who'd given this often very harrowing testimony, but understanding the, the labor and effort and courage of them constructing the world for us in a certain way and that kind of privilege and then responsibility for us to be distilling that now into a piece of a verdict. And, and it was also the way that it allowed us to name the multiple addressees of the tribunal. This is formally an indictment of the UK government, of EU and EU member states, but it may surprise you to hear they, they never come to these public opinion tribunals. So, who, who, who are we talking to and who is listening? And it was that possibility then to, to name uh, our, our relationships to each other. Um, certainly the people who had given testimony, but also the educators, the university lecturers, the healthcare workers, parents, consumers, um, the public. Um, the possibility also, which, um, which had emerged throughout the two days, but which, uh, which I wanted to name again and which again created those bridges and paths and solidarities for working together to counter that epistemic violence, to recognize throughout the tribunal the leadership of migrant women of color who had been 
key to organizing and making the event happen, but also, um, also who brought that kind of testimony that allowed us all, by experiencing the world as they constructed it for us, allowed us to see the systems we were up against, systems in the plural, those intersections of, of race and legal status and class and um, sexuality, but also providing us with these new responses, these new kinds of examples of, of activism, where as uh, one, one woman testified about her experiences and her activism as a detainee at Yarl's Wood, and the man in the next session said, yeah, what happens in Yarl's Wood the kind, that kind of activism goes across the nation. And it was, again, just recognizing those kinds of connections and recognizing that kind of leadership and political knowledge production that became very fruitful for all of us because that then pointed toward verdict, okay, but also a kind of unity that doesn't come at the cost of, of uh, plucking pieces of these women, of the, the migrant women of color activists who testified, they're plucking pieces of their experiences to fit some kind of narrative of migrant justice that is going to diverge in the end very sharply from, from what it is that they're claiming and what it is that they're, they're experiencing. Instead, as leaders at the center of what we could be doing, they can be, <laughs> there can be other types of claims that make different types of work visible as work, different types of abuse visible as abuse that show us a different face of migrant detention that we might not otherwise see, that show us different constraints on what it may be to be unfree or less free to move, and showing us again those multiple oppressions and their intersections, the way they're interlocking and mutually constituting each other in when austerity and these forces of global capitalism are colliding with regimes of border control and colluding with regimes of border control. And so there was that kind of moment, you know, when your people are speaking and there's that kind of ripple of emotion and recognition that has opened up these other pathways since, that's opened up different ways for us to interact, for us to speak and listen together. And it happened such a little time ago that that's something that's still unfolding. But I just wanted to share that that experience with you, because certainly that's not going to erase the inequalities between us. Um, that's something I think many of us have been uh, continuing in, in, in this literature. It doesn't, it doesn't take them away. We don't step outside of that. First of all, we were sitting up on a table, and at the end of the day, we're the ones who are going to write those pages, and it's not going to be possible to, to reshape those things together. But it was more about that moment, about that interaction, and about the possibility not to get rid of those inequalities, especially of mobility. There were people who just couldn't come because they were supposed to come from other countries and they couldn't get their visas, or because they'd been detained or deported. So we're not saying that, well, I'm not saying that went away. But there is that fleeting moment of a, a potential shift in our roles and of a way of at least um, hoping for a different type of exchange between all of us that could let us challenge that hostile environment in a different way that wasn't necessarily a challenge directed to the state, though of course it is and it will be, but it was creating those different kinds of relationships, those different moments of, of, of something like equality through a different form of listening as, as solidarity. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you.